10. Hounds often lose all trace of him, when this is impossible. He bounds over the ground, making as wide gaps as he can between his tracks. Sometimes, too, he runs into a herd of cattle, and so confuses the dogs, and he has been known to jump up on the back of an ox, and take a ride on the frightened creature, in order to get his own feet partly off of the ground for a time, and thus to break the line of his scent. When very hard-pressed, a stag has suddenly dropped on the ground, and when most of the dogs, unable to stop themselves, dash over him, he springs to his feet, and darts off in an opposite direction. He will also run back on his own track, and employ many other means of the kind to deceive the dogs, showing most conclusively that he understands the theory of scent, and the dog's power of perceiving it, and also that he has been able to devise the very best plans to elude his pursuers. Not only do stags reflect in this general manner in regard to their most common and greatest danger, but they make particular reflections, sweet to particular places and occasions. The tricks and maneuvers which would be very successful in one forest and in one season would not answer at all in another place and at another time, and so they reflect on the subject and lay their plans to suit the occasion. There are many animals which possess great acuteness in eluding their hunters but the tricks of the stag are sufficient to show us to what an extent some animals are capable of reflection, when we must not believe our eyes. There are a great number of marvelous things told us of phantom forms and ghostly apparitions of specters that flit about lonely roads on moonlight nights, or haunt peaceful people in their own homes, of funeral processions, with long trains of mourners, watched from a distance, but which, on nearer approach, melt into a line of mist, of wild which dances in deserted houses and balls of fire bounding out of doors and windows stories which cause the flesh of children to creep upon their bones, and make cowards of them where there is no reason for fear, for you may lay it down as a fact, established beyond dispute, that not one of these things is a reality, the person who tells these marvels has always what seems the best of reasons for his belief, he either saw these things himself or knew somebody, strictly truthful, who had seen them, he did not know, what I am going to prove to you, that a thing may be true and yet not be real, in other words, that there are times when we do actually see marvels that seem supernatural, but that, on such occasions, we must not believe our own eyes, but search for a natural cause, and, if we look faithfully, we are sure to find one, once a vessel was sailing over a northern ocean in the midst of the short, arctic summer, the sun was hot, the air was still, and a group of sailors lying lazily upon the deck were almost asleep, when an exclamation of fear from one of them made them all spring to their feet. The one who had uttered the cry walked into the air at a little distance, and there the awe-stricken sailors saw a large ship, with all sails set, gliding over what seemed to be a placid ocean, for beneath the ship was the reflection of it. The news soon spread through the vessel that a phantom ship with a ghostly crew was sailing in the air over a phantom ocean, and that it was a bad omen and meant that not one of them should ever see land again. The captain was told the wonderful tale, and coming on deck, he explained to the sailors that this strange appearance was caused by the reflection of some ship that was sailing on the water below this image, but at such a distance they could not see it. There were certain conditions of the atmosphere, he said, when the sun's rays could form a perfect picture in the air of objects on the earth, like the images one sees in glass or water, but they were not generally upright as in the case of this ship, but reversed turn bottom upwards, this appearance in the air is called a mirage, he told a sailor to go up to the fort up and look beyond the phantom ship, the man obeyed, 
and reported that he could see on the water, below the ship in the air, one precisely like it, just then another ship was seen in the air, only this one was a steamship, and was bottom upwards, as the captain had said these mirages generally appeared, soon after, the steamship itself came in sight, the sailors were now convinced, and never afterwards believed in phantom ships, a French army marching across the burning sands of an Egyptian desert, fainting with thirst and choked with fine sand, were suddenly revived in spirit by the sight of a sheet of water in the distance, in it were mirrored the trees and villages, gardens and pretty houses of a cultivated land, all reversed, the blue sky was mirrored there, too, just as you can see the banks of a lake, and the sky that bends over it, in its calm waters, the soldiers rushed towards the place, frantic with joy, but when they got there they found nothing but the hot sands, again they saw the lake at a distance, and made another headlong rush, only to be again disappointed, this happened frequently, until the men were in despair, and imagined that some demon was tormenting them, but there happened to be with this army a wise man, who did not trust entirely to his own eyes, and although he saw exactly what the others did, he did not believe that there was anything there but air, he set to a work to investigate it, and found out that the whole thing was an illusion it was the reflection of the gardens and villages that were on the river Nile, thrown up into the air, like the ships the sailors saw, only in the clear atmosphere of Egypt these images are projected to a long distance, and demons had nothing whatever to do with it, people used to believe in a fairy called Fata Morgana, wonderful things were said of her, and her dominions were in the air, where she had large cities which she sometimes amused herself by turning into a variety of shapes, the cities were often seen by dwellers on the Mediterranean sea coast, sometimes one of them would be like an earthly city, with houses and churches, and nearly always with a background of mountains, in a moment it would change into a confused mass of long colonnades, lofty towers, and battlements waving with flags, and then the mountains reeling and falling, a long row of windows would appear glowing with rainbow colors, and perhaps, in another instant, all this would be swept away, and nothing be seen but gloomy cypress trees, these things can be seen now occasionally, as of old, but they are no longer in fairyland, now we know that they are the images of cities and mountains on the coast, and the reason they assume these fantastic forms is that the layers of air through which the rays of light pass are curved and irregular, a gigantic figure haunts the Vosh mountains, known by the name of, the specter of the Brocken, the ignorant peasants were, in former times, in great fear of it, thinking it a supernatural being, and fancying that it brought upon them all manner of evil, and it must be confessed it was a fearful sight to behold suddenly upon the summit of a lofty mountain an immense giant, sometimes pawning in a threatening attitude to a village below, as if dooming it to destruction, sometimes with arms appraised, as if invoking ruin upon all the country, and sometimes stalking along with such tremendous strides as to make but one step from peak to peak, often dwarfing himself to nothingness, and again stretching up until his head is in the clouds, then disappearing entirely for a moment, only to reappear more formidable than before, but now the specter of the Brocken is no longer an object of fear, why, because men have found him out, and he is nothing in the world but a shadow, when the sun is in the right position, an ordinary-sized man on a lower mountain will see a gigantic shadow of himself thrown upon a cloud beyond the Brocken, though it appears to be on the mountain itself, and it is so perfect a representation that it is difficult to believe it is only a shadow, but it can be easily proved, if the man stoops to pick up anything, down goes the specter, if he raises his hand, 
So does the specter, if he takes a step of two feet. The specter takes one of miles, if he raises his hat. The specter politely returns his salute. When you behold anything marvelous, and your eyes tell you that you have seen some ghostly thing, don't believe them, but investigate the matter closely, and you will find it no more a phantom than the mirage or the specter of the Brocken, a city under the ground, under the bright skies of Italy, in a picturesque valley, with the mountains close at hand and the blue waves of the Mediterranean rolling at a little distance at the foot of wonderful Vesuvius, green and fertile, and covered with vines to its very top from which smoke is perpetually escaping, and in whose heart fires are eternally raging, in this beautiful valley stands the city of Pompeii. You might, however, remain upon the spot a long time and never find out that there was a city there. All around you would see groves and vineyards, and cultivated fields and villas, for the city is beneath your feet. Under the vineyards and orchards are temples filled with statues, houses with furniture, pictures, and all home-like things. Nothing is wanting there but life, for Pompeii is a buried city, and fully two-thirds of it has not yet been excavated, but a short walk from this place will bring you to the spot where excavations have been made, and about one-third of the ancient city lies once more under the light of heaven. It is doubtful whether you can see it when you get to it for the mounds of ashes and rubbish piled around, but, clambering over these, you will pay forty cents for admission and pass through a turnstile into a street where you will see long rows of ruined houses, and empty shops, and broken temples, and niches which have contained statues of heathen gods and goddesses, as you wander about you will come across laborers busily employed in clearing away rubbish in obstructed streets, it is a very lively scene, as you can see in the picture, men are digging zealously into the heaps of earth and rubbish, and filling baskets which the barefoot peasant girls carry to the cars at a little distance, a railroad has been built expressly to carry away the earth. The cars are drawn by mules. The girls prefer carrying their baskets on their heads. The men have to dig carefully, for there is no knowing when they may come across some rare and valuable work of art. The excavations are conducted in this manner. Among the trees, and in the cultivated fields there can be traced little hillocks, which are pretty regular in form and size. These indicate the blocks of houses in the buried city, and, of course, the streets run between them, after the land is bought from the owners, these streets are carefully marked out, the vines are cleared away, the trees cut down, and the digging out of these streets is commenced from the top, the work is carried on pretty steadily at present, but it is only within the last few years that it has been conducted with any degree of enterprise and skill, let us leave this rubbish, and go into a street that has already been cleared, the first thing you will observe is that it is very narrow, it is evidently not intended for a fashionable drive, but few of the streets are any wider than this one. The greatest width of a street in Pompeii is seven yards, and some are only two and a half yards. Sidewalks and all. The middle of the street is paved with blocks of lava. The sidewalks are raised, and it is evident the owners of the houses were allowed to put any pavement they pleased in front of their dwellings. In one place you will see handsome stone flags the next pavement may be nothing but soil beaten down while the next will be costly marble. The upper stories of the houses are in ruins. It is probable, therefore, that they were built of wood, while the lower stories, being of stone, still remain. They had few windows on the street, as the Pompeians preferred that these should look out on an inner square or court. To the right of the picture is a small monument, and in the left-hand corner is a fountain, or rather the stone slabs that once enclosed a fountain. As we walk slowly up the solitary street, we think of the busy, 
restless feet that trod these very stones 1800 years ago. Our minds go back to the year of our Lord 79, when there was high carnival in the little city of Pompeii, with its 30,000 people, when the town was filled with strangers who had come to the great show, at the time of an election, when politicians were scheming and working to get themselves or their friends into power, when gaily dressed crowds thronged the streets on their way to the amphitheatre to see the gladiatorial fight, when there was feasting and revelry in every house, when merchants were exulting in the midst of thriving trade, when the pagan temples were hung with garlands and filled with gifts, when the slaves were at work in the mills, the kitchens, and the baths, when the gladiators were fighting the wild beasts of the arena then it was that a swift destruction swept over the city and buried it in a silence that lasted for centuries. Vesuvius, the volcano so near them, but which had been silent so many years that they had ceased to dread it, suddenly woke into activity, and threw out of its summit a torrent of burning lava and ashes and in a few short hours buried the two cities of Herculaneum and Pompeii so completely that two centuries after no one could tell the precise place where they had stood, and men built houses and cultivated farms over the spot, never dreaming that cities lay beneath them. But here we are at the house of Pansa. Let us go in. We do not wait for any invitation from the owner, for he left it nearly two thousand years ago, and his descendants, if he had any, are totally ignorant of their illustrious descent. First we enter a large hall called the Atrium. You can see from the magnificence of this apartment in what style the rich Pompeians lived. The floor is paved in black and white mosaic, with a marble basin in the center. The doors opening from this hall conduct us to smaller apartments, to reception rooms, a parlor, the library, and six diminutive bedrooms, only large enough to contain a bedstead, and with no window. It must have been the fashion to sleep with open doors or the sleepers must inevitably have been suffocated. At the end of the atrium you see a large court with a fountain in the middle. This was called the peristyle. Around it was a portico with columns. To the left were three bedchambers and the kitchen, and to the right three bedchambers and the dining room. Behind the peristyle was a grand saloon, and back of this the garden. The upper stories of this house had entirely disappeared. This is a spacious house, but there are some in the city more beautifully decorated with paintings and mosaics, when the rubbish was cleared out of this house, much of Pansa's costly furniture was found to be in perfect preservation, and also the statues, in the library were found a few books, not quite destroyed, in the kitchen the coal was in the fireplaces, and the kitchen utensils of bronze and terracotta were in their proper places, nearly all of the valuable portable things found in Pompeii had been carried away and placed in the museum at Naples, this Pansa was candidate for the office of Edile or mayor of the city, at the time of the eruption of Vesuvius. We know this from the placards that were found posted in various parts of the city, and which were as fresh and clean as on the day they were written. These placards, or posters, were very numerous, and there seem to have been a great many candidates for the various city offices, and it is very evident, from the inscriptions on the houses, on the walls of public buildings and the baths, that party feeling ran quite as high in this luxurious city of ancient times as it does now in any city in America, for these Pompeians had no newspaper, and expressed their sentiments on the walls, and they have consequently come down to us of the present day. These inscriptions not only related to politics, but referred often to social and domestic matters, and, taken in connection with the pictures of home scenes that were painted on the walls of the houses, give us such accurate and vivid accounts of the people that it is easy to imagine them all back in their places, and living the old life over again. Pansa, 
and Paradis, and Celeste, and Byrond, and Julia, and Sabina seem to be our own friends, with whom we have often visited before a morning theatre, and gone home to dine. That curious-looking pin with a cupid on it is a lady's hairpin. The necklaces are in the form of serpents, which were favorite symbols with the ancients. The stands of their tables, candelabra, and sea, were carved into grotesque or beautiful designs, and even the kitchen utensils were made graceful with figures of exquisite workmanship, and were sometimes fashioned out of silver. Among the pretty things found in Pompeian houses I will mention the following, a bronze statuette of a dancing fawn, with head and arms uplifted, every muscle seems to be in motion, and the whole body dancing, another of a boy with head bent forward, and the whole body in the attitude of listening, then there is a fine group of statuary representing the mighty Hercules holding a stag bent over his knee, another of the beautiful Apollo with his lyre in his hand leaning against a pillar, there are figures of huntsmen in full chase, and of fishermen sitting patiently and quietly, waiting for a bite. A very celebrated curiosity is the large urn or vase of blue glass, with figures carved on it in half-relief, in white, for the ancients knew how to carve glass. These white figures look as if made of the finest ivory instead of being carved in glass. They represent masks enveloped in festoons of vine tendrils, loaded with clusters of grapes, mingled with other foliage, on which birds are swinging children plucking grapes or treading them underfoot, or blowing on flutes, or tumbling over each other in frolicsome glee. This superb urn, which is like nothing we have nowadays, is supposed to have been intended to hold the ashes of the dead, for it was a custom of ancient days to burn the bodies of the dead, and place the urns containing their ashes in magnificent tombs, instead of hanging pictures as we do. The Pompeians generally had them painted upon the smoothly prepared walls of their halls and saloons, the ashes of Vesuvius preserved these paintings so well that, when first exposed to the light, the coloring on them is fresh and vivid, and every line and figure clear and distinct, but the sunlight soon fades them. They are very beautiful, and teach us much about the beliefs and customs of the old city. Lovely and graceful as were these pictures, the floors of the houses are much more wonderful. They are marvels of art. Not only are flowers and running vines and complicated designs there laid in mosaics, but pictures that startle with their lifelike beauty. There are many of these, but perhaps the finest of all is the one found in the same house with the dancing fawn. It represents a battle. A squadron of victorious Greeks is rushing upon part of a Persian army. The latter are turning to flee. Those around the vanquished Persian king think only of their safety. But the king, with his hand extended towards his dying general, turns his back upon his flying forces, and invites death. Every figure in it seems to be in motion. You seem to hear the noise of battle, and to see the rage, fear, triumph, and pity expressed by the different faces. Think of such wonderful effects being produced by putting together pieces of glass and marble, colored enamel, and various stones. But, leaving all these beauties, and descending to homely everyday life, we will go into a bakery. Here is one in a good state of preservation. It is a mill and bakery together. The Pompeians sent their grain to the baker and he ground it into flour, and, making it into dough, baked it and sent back loaves of bread, the mills look like huge hourglasses, they are made of two cone-shaped stones with the small ends together, the upper one revolved, and crushed the grain between the stones, they were worked sometimes by a slave, but oftenest by a donkey, there is the trough for kneading the bread, the arched oven, the cavity below for the ashes, the large vase for water with which to sprinkle the crust and make it, shiny, and the pipe to carry off the smoke, 
In one of these ovens were found 81 loaves, weighing a pound each, whole, hard, and black. In the order in which they had been placed on the 23 of November, 79, suppose the baker who placed them there had been told that 1800 years would elapse before they would be taken out, having wandered about the city, and looked at all the streets, monuments, and dwellings, and having seen very much more than I have here described the forum, or town hall, the theaters, baths, stores, temples, the street where the tombs are and having looked at the rude cross carved on a wall, showing that the religion of Christ had penetrated to this pagan city having examined all these, you will visit the amphitheatre. to do this we must leave the part of the city that has interested us so much, and, passing once more through the vineyards and orchards that still cover a large portion of the city, descend again into a sort of ravine, where we will find the amphitheatre. It was quite as the end of the city, next to the wall. It is a circus. The large open space in the center was called the arena. Here there were fierce and bloody fights, wild beasts fought with each other, or with men trained to the business and called gladiators. And these gladiators often fought with each other all for the amusement of the people, who were never satisfied unless a quantity of blood was shed, and many were killed. This arena was covered with sand, and a ditch filled with water separated it from the seats. The seats arose from this arena, tier above tier. There were three divisions of them, separating the rich from the middle class, and these again from the slaves. It was well arranged for the comfort of the audience, having wide aisles and plenty of places of exit. The hole was covered with an awning. In the wall around the arena are the holes where thick iron bars were inserted as a precaution against the bounds of the panthers. To the right of the principal entrance are two square rooms with gratings where the wild beasts were kept. This amphitheatre would hold 20,000 persons. We visit this place last because it was while the amphitheatre was crowded with people intent upon the bloody spectacle, while wild beasts, and men more cruel than the beasts, were fighting together, and spectators less pitiful than either were jarredly enjoying it, that suddenly the ground trembled violently. This perhaps was not perceived in the circus. On account of the excitement all were in and the noise that was going on in the arena, but it was soon followed by a whirlwind of ashes, and lurid flashes of flame darted across the sky. The beasts were instantly tamed, and cowered down in abject terror, and the gladiators, for the first time in their lives, grew pale with fear. Then the startled crowd within the vast building heard from the streets the fearful cry, Vesuvius is on fire. In an instant the spectacle is forgotten, the terrified crowd rush out of the building, and happy is it for them that the architects have provided so many places of exit. Some fled towards the sea, and some to the open country. Those who reached the ships were saved, but woe to those who went to their homes to collect their valuables to take with them, or who took refuge under cover in the cellars. After the rain of ashes came a shower of blazing stones, which fell uninterruptedly, setting fire to all parts of the city and blocking up the streets with burning masses and then a fresh storm of ashes sweeping down would partly smother the flames, but, blocking up the doorways, would stifle those within the houses, and to add to the horror, the volumes of smoke that poured from the mountain caused a darkness deeper than night to settle on the doomed city, through which the people groped their way, except when lighted by the burning houses, what horror and confusion in the streets, friends seeking each other with faces of utter despair, the groans of the dying mingled with the crash of falling buildings, the pelting of the fiery stones, the shrieks of women and children, the terrific peals of thunder. So ended the day, and the dreadful scene went on far into the night. In a few hours the silence of death fell upon the city. 
the ashes continued to pour steadily down upon it, and drifting into every crevice of the buildings, and settling like a closely fitting shroud around the thousands and thousands of dead bodies, preserved all that the flames had spared for the eyes of the curious who should live centuries after, and a grey ashy hill blotted out Pompeii from the sight of that generation. Hundreds of skeletons had already been found, and their expressive attitudes tell us the story of their death. We know of the pitiful avarice and vanity of many of the rich ladies who went to their homes to save their jewels, and fell with them clutched tightly in their hands. One woman in the house of the fawn was loaded with jewels, and had died in the vain effort to hold up with her outstretched arms the ceiling that was crushing down upon her. But women were not the only ones who showed an avaricious disposition in the midst of the thunders and flames of Vesuvius. Men had tried to carry off their money, and the delay had cost them their lives, and they were buried in the ashes with the coins they so highly valued. Dion, one of the richest men of Pompeii, abandoned his wife and daughters and was fleeing with a bag of silver when he was stifled in front of his garden by noxious vapors. In the cellar of his house were found the corpses of seventeen women and children. A priest was discovered in the temple of Isis, holding fast to an axe with which he had cut his way through two walls, and died at the third, in a shop two lovers had died in each other's arms, a woman carrying a baby had sought refuge in a tomb, but the ashes had walled them tightly in, a soldier died bravely at his post, erect before a city gate, one hand on his spear and the other on his mouth, as if to keep from breathing the stifling gases. Thus perished in a short time over 30,000 citizens and strangers in the city of Pompeii. Now a city under the ground, the coachman. When a boy sees a coachman driving to showy, high-stepping horses along the street, or, better still, over a level country road, with his long whip curling in the air, which whip he now and then flirts so as to make a sharp, cracking noise over the horses' heads, and occasionally brings down with a light flick upon the flanks of the right or left horse, the carriage shining with varnish and plate, rolling along swiftly and smoothly, the little boy is apt to think that coachman must be a very happy mortal, if the man on the carriage box sees the boy looking at him with so much admiration, he will probably throw him a jolly little laugh and a friendly nod, and, gathering up the reins and drawing them in tightly so as to arch the horse's necks and make them look prouder and more stately than before, he will give a loud crack with his curling whiplash and the horses will start off at a rapid trot, and the carriage will sweep around a curve in the road so gracefully that the boy's heart will be filled with envy not of the persons in the carriage. Oh, no, riding in a closed carriage is a very tame and dull affair, but he will envy the driver. An ambition springs up in his mind at that instant. Of all things in the world he would rather be a coachman. That shall be his business when he grows up to be a man, and the chances are that when he goes home he tells his father so. But if the little boy, instead of lying tucked in his warm bed, should be set down at twelve o'clock at night upon the pavement in front of that great house with the tall lamps on the steps, he would see the same coachman under conditions that he would not envy at all. The empty carriage is closed to the curb stone, with the door swinging open as if to urge the owners to hurry and take possession. The high-stepping trotters are covered with blankets to protect them from the piercing cold, and, with their heads drooping, are either asleep or wondering why they are not put into the stable to take their night's rest, and the coachman is dancing about on the pavement to keep his feet warm not by any means a merry kind of dance, although he moves about pretty briskly, he has taken off his gloves, for they seem to make his hands colder, and now he has thrust one hand into his pocket and is blowing on the other with all his might, his whip, that curled so defiantly in the air, 
is now pushed under his arm, and the lash is trailing, limp and draggled, on the stones, he is warmly clad, and his great coat has three capes, but Hall cannot put sufficient heat into his body, for it is a bitter cold night, and the wind comes howling down the street as if it would like to bite off everybody's ears and noses, it shakes the leafless branches of the trees until they all seem to be moaning and groaning together, the moon is just rising over the church, and the coachman is standing right in a broad patch of its light, but moonlight, though very beautiful when you are where you can comfortably admire it, never warmed anybody yet, and so the poor coachman gets no good out of that, there is a party in the great house, the boy is standing where he can only see the lower steps and the tall lamps, but the coachman can see that it is lighted from garret to cellar, he knows that it is warm as summer in there, there are stands of flowers all the way up the stairways, baskets of them are swinging from the ceilings, and vines are trailing over the walls, who in there could ever guess how bleak and cold it is outside, ladies in shimmering silks and satins, and glittering with jewels, are flitting about the halls, and floating up and down the rooms in graceful dances, to the sound of music that only comes out to the coachman in fitful bursts, he has amused himself watching all this during part of the evening, but now he is looking in at the side light of the door to see if there are any signs of the breaking up of the party, or if those he is to take home are ready to go away. He is getting very impatient, and let us hope they will soon come out and relieve him. Geysers, and how they work. Geysers, or fountains of hot water or mud, are found in several parts of the